Thank you very much for that introduction. I'm amazed that so many people want to know about the Fulton Report. <laughs> so can I congratulate you all and thank you for being here. I think it's amazing. Uh, and I, I, I find it difficult that um, this is regarded as a matter of history. <laughs> for me, it's my own recent past. Uh, and um, the Fulton Report has been a kind of thread throughout my career. It was commissioned, the, the Royal Commission, it was a Royal Commission. You all ought to have a copy of this. You've all got copies, that's you. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's a terribly important document. And it's very usefully got the Trevelyan-Northcott report in it, and I, which I frequently quote. It's a marvellous piece of writing. Uh, so, I, I, as well as Kevin's book, you ought to have this. Um, <laughs> it was set up, the Royal Commission, in February 1966 which is the month in which I was admitted. I won my place in the civil service. And I entered the civil service in September 1966. Um, just a word, I, I never talk about my background, but I feel I can now. Um, my father-in-law was a man called Frank Lee, who was permanent secretary of the treasury from 1950 to 1960 and then uh, was permanent secretary, of the, no, permanent secretary of the Board of Trade from 1950 to 1960, permanent secretary of the Treasury from 60 to 62. A lovely man, very dominant permanent secretary at the time, had worked with Maynard Keynes in Washington, huge number of stories from that period. Uh, and William Armstrong was his protege. He was responsible for the, the remarkable promotion of William to the... Um, to the permanent secretary to succeed him. And one of the, uh, one of the things, it was, I, I was horrified to be courting his daughter, and I very nearly killed it at an early stage. But I began to be fascinated by the civil service because people who were active in the civil service in the 60s used to come to dinner or to stay for weekends. So I met William Armstrong, as it were, in, about the, in the mid-60s, and I have a very vivid memory of him. He was very charismatic. He smoked endlessly. And I can remember him describing running the economy in terms of a ping-pong ball held up in a fountain. That's all I can offer you. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it made a big impression on me. Um, anyway, going back to all I can do in the limited time I've got is just talk to you, uh, I'll give you a few reactions to what Kevin has said. First, a mystery. Why was the Fulton Royal Commission set up? What was it that um, made the then government set it up? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. The gossip at the time was that ministers were suspicious of the civil service. Uh, they distrusted the Treasury in particular, and they were searching for... They'd already set up the Department for Economic Affairs, which you all know about, and they were searching for a way of stirring up the civil service and um, getting it to be more, quote, modern. That's, that's, but I, 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 that's gossip, which I remember. My own involvement in dealing with Fulton 
came from the fact that I was, for a period in the 60s, very active trade unionists. I set up the trade union for research assistants at LSE when I was working as a research assistant there. And I set up uh, the assistant principal subcommittee of the First Division Association in the 60s, which had, um, I've just got a list of uh, luminaries, had all sorts of people. Uh, uh, we were very militant uh, in our own self-interest. Uh, and we, we were very excited by Fulton when it was published. We thought this is the lever for change. We saw it partly, in, but we also saw it as a threat. We supported the basic analysis. I found last night, at last, a box with my papers in. I haven't had a chance to read them. All I can say is that it's got my analysis of Fulton in it, and I didn't half go on at length. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> it's a terribly boring, dreadful document. Uh, but it did... <laughs> But um, it, 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 the um, three things immediately concerned, I'm looking at this from the bottom as opposed to your top-down approach. First, we were determined that the method one approach for recruiting fast-stream civil servants should be abolished. Uh, it's the first time I'd given evidence to a committee. There was a Davis committee, and I gave evidence to it on behalf of the FDA. Because what you had to do to get in at that time, you could either go through what was known as method two, which is what you roughly have now, only more modern now, or you could resit your university exams, which was pointless and only tested what had already been tested by your degree. And we gave evidence, and we, that was successful. They did abolish uh, method one. Detailed, not important, but it was important at the time. Secondly, we were very keen on training. And there was a very good training program uh, which um, I've got the programmes for, you probably, it's no interest now, but there was something called a six-month course. I've still got it. There are two products. It was, it was a very, very good training programme. And we were, wasn't it? Okay. It was a good training programme, it was a lousy course. Okay, well, <laughs> but the, the thing about it was we were determined that any training that which should be done uh, resulting from full to changing training should preserve what was good and not be used as an excuse for cutting back on training. We were, there was a, and you should have to understand that all HR was tightly controlled by the Treasury in a degree which is just unimaginable now. I have a feeling that my first week I was given a pair of scissors, but only with Treasury authority. I still have those scissors <laughs> and guard them with my life. But you cannot understand the enormous impact of taking HR, personal management, whatever, the stabs, away from the Treasury and giving it to a separate department. The hopes which it gave rise to and the sense of potential liberation, backed with William Armstrong going there, gave one a sense that maybe we were moving into a new period. You may say we were innocent and starry-eyed, but my goodness, it was a very brave new world that we thought we were entering, which I'm afraid um, sort of evaporated a little fairly fast. But there we are. <laughs> but, th but the argument that is one of the things that, th 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 one of the things it did was put a central challenge in. In my first week, I was taught by my principal that specialists, experts, were on tap, but not on top. That famous phrase, which is really used. Uh, and this challenged us because it said we were amateurs and amateurs were not good enough for the world today. And the, our concern about training, and I write this thing saying, is, is in my 
note to the CSD saying, I noted, saying, um, what is the civil service for? We ought to, what Fulton does not do is what are we there for? Look at the job, because Fulton has this classic remark, look at the job first, which I've used throughout my career in, in, in any management situation. Look at the job first and then work out what you need to do to uh, what you need. And that's why one of the reasons I support Next Steps is look at the job first. And I said that Fulton didn't really look at the job first of what the civil service was for. Anyway, that was my analysis, at the, not now, but at the time. Um, I, and I think that uh, we lost, I mean, there was enormous surge of excitement and among the young, <laughs> uh, and so on. But when Heath came to power, it did alter, because in October 1970, uh, there was a very important white paper, both reorganising government, it merged Mintech and the Board of Trade, I remember that, because I've ended up being evicted from my office and sitting on the stairs with my possessions. But um, it, was, it had a number of changes in it. It introduced, set up the CPRS. It identified our weakness as policymakers uh, and said that the central policy review staff should be set up, battle as to where, ultimately cabinet office, to challenge conventional thinking coming forward from departments. And my good, it was under Victor Rothschild. Uh, it had um, some really good brains in it. You weren't in it, were you? No. You were in it. Yes, you were, Kate. It has a very good brains in it. Kate is a remnant of that, basically. I started to think, because who else is? There was um, John Guinness. Yes, okay, we could. We, but Waldegrave. It was a fantastic. Robin Butler. And um, Madeleine Aston. All sorts of people were in there uh, who were taking on. Um, the conventional wisdom coming from departments and some of what they did was absolutely on the nail and outstanding some of it wasn't but it was I think a lot of it was uh, and initially it was exciting by the early 80s when Mrs Thatcher abolished it it had lost its way like most units have a kind of lifetime of three or four years at most and I think it's first three or four years under Victor were, were, were the best bit but that was another exciting thing that's happening and there were there were we were over and there was a lot of other reform which Heath wanted to implement uh, under the guidance of David Howell, who was, who'd done a lot of thinking about how to reorganise the civil service. And so that the kind of layer upon layer happened. And of course, William Armstrong's move to being what we all call deputy prime minister as, a, as running of economic policy took the edge off the department of the, of the civil service department. That's a, so, um, in, I had a long talk with Douglas Allen about what happened to the CSD uh, before he died, uh, and I wish I'd written it down, I wish I'd recorded it, because it's full of interest. He gave, a, what you very tactfully did not mention, was the spectacular way in which William Armstrong's civil service career came to an end, which I haven't got time to go through, but basically he had an absolutely colossal nervous breakdown, uh, of, I think of the psychotic kind, uh, in the meeting of permanent secretaries, uh, which is, uh, it, it, I don't think anyone's ever written up, have they? It's, it's, it's in the book, it's in the book. <laughs> it's good. Well, read it, because that alone is a, a fascinating story. Robert Armstrong story. is a very good source of Robert's good on it. Oh, oh, he's in the room. Oh, okay. get, get, that's marvellous. Good, you've got it. And Douglas Allen said he hated being permanent secretary of the CSD because he never had the ear of the Prime Minister. 
whatever advice he gave to the Prime Minister, the Cabinet Secretary of the day, either John Hunt, or oh, John Hunt, and later uh, Robert with Ian Bancroft, would go to the Prime Minister and give his own advice on what the head of the CSD had said, without the, the, the head of the CSD being present to defend himself. And that was a hugely weak position. They were across the road, not the road, Horse Guards Parade, in that red brick building. Uh, and they, they simply struggled all the time. And the rest of us in Whitehall could see that they were struggling. Um, other points. Um, I, uh, I think the <coughs> report nonetheless created a framework within which management of the civil service and modernisation of the civil service t took place not just over five years or ten years, over the whole of my career. I used to refer to the Fulton Report in speeches as head of the civil service. People were already then beginning to look slightly baffled, but it was, it was still worth quoting it. And I went through the conclusions last night and looked at the things which they got right and which ultimately either influenced policy or were implemented. It's quite interesting. I mean, the setting up the CSD, of course, it got overtaken. It ended up in the MPO, which is where I met Kate. And, she, uh, and, and the MPO was a kind of management of personnel office. I, I was in charge of civil service policy for a while there, 18 months. And it was a little group, a sad group, under the head of the civil service. Uh, but they, nonetheless, um, the idea of taking away treasury control of civil service uh, management was absolutely fundamental for what for f later reforms. Secondly, um, they do comment somewhere accurately that civil service management should be under the control of the prime minister, and that is something that still continues, uh, using a minister in the cabinet office as a day-to-day -day, uh, minister for it. They said that all classes should be abolished. Well. Thanks to Kate, I mean, that has actually long since been overtaken. But they also say that employing departments should have a larger role in recruitment. Well, delegation to next steps in management was just a far more comprehensive and more important version of that. But they had the germ of the thought there. Like so much, there are so many, it's full of little thoughts which later grew into big policy developments. Um, greater mobility at senior levels, well, that is now, uh, and also bringing in people more external recruitment. Well, that has now been done to a degree far more than they ever envisaged. Um, permanent secretary has overall responsibility for the department. Thank you, well, you know that. Hiving off, which became, we think of as privatisation, is actually in there. They had the thought of privatisation. Um, getting rid of unnecessary secrecy. Well, we have got an FOI Act, which is uh, implemented in my time as cabinet secretary. Uh, making recruitment speedier and more objective. Yeah. All of the, a lot of the things which we built into reforms in later years, the germ of the thought is in the Fulton Report. The way the civil service reforms is, is by wave after wave of reform breaks on the shore and each reform makes a bit of change and then gets washed away. The big exceptions to that are the Financial Management Initiative, which was fundamental reform in the early 80s and has been the bedrock of future management and the next steps changes, which I think I, you can't overestimate in terms of the way in which they brought how much of the ultimate is the civil service into the next step agencies. I seem to you, you used a percentage in your presentation. I thought it was higher than the figure you well, used. I was a bit wary because it comes yeah, and goes. Yeah. But I mean, at, I think at the peak it was about 75%. Yeah. 
Well, I think it's higher than that, I was told when I was cabinet secretary. Anyway, I think it's, I think it, but the point about it was that the delegation of management, the recognition of management to u large units or small units in return for performance uh, a, a, and a framework agreement is a hugely radical change, and that too lasted. Other initiatives have come and gone. I can, I can remember them, but it's only I can remember them. It would be tedious to go through them. But I can remember a conference of heads of uh, principal establishment officers in the early 80s, led by a man called Sir John Castles, in which a lot of the further development of Fulton was discussed. Uh, and a whole program was brought up then, which actually didn't have that much impact. And to, and, 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 um, but nonetheless, illustrates the, the way in which Fulton set the framework. Now, I'm going to stop talking, because I've talked for longer than I was asked to. Uh, but thank you all very much. And again, it's amazing you're interested, but you're right. It is, in its own way, if you care about the civil service, it is a seminal document, which, imperfect as it is, and I love that um, quote about being fashion page. Uh, I think it's ex it is very like that. It nonetheless set the scene, set the tone, gave permission for change, which very slowly, gradually, over later de decades, we took advantage of. Thank you very much.